Welcome to The Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we'll be talking about HELP syndrome. This not very well-known and hard-to-diagnose syndrome sometimes presents like preeclampsia and other times just like regular pregnancy symptoms. On top of that, there's little you can do to prevent it. What can you do instead of worrying? Melissa Krowecki is here to bring awareness and share her story. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Natural Breastfeeding and their free quick start video which shows you a simple technique to prevent nipple pain and the easiest way to help your newborn latch and for you to produce enough milk for your baby. Go watch it at naturalbreastfeeding.com. This episode of Birthful is also brought to you by Megan Offling, a birth doula in Albuquerque who is all about offering women the information and support they need to make their own empowered birth choices. Learn more at womanofvalorbirth.com. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty mamas and mamas-to-be, and mighty dads and dads-to-be. As always, thank you for listening and for all the love you give the show. If you find that this podcast is making a difference in your life, then one of the easiest ways you can support it is by leaving a written review on iTunes and subscribing. It really, really helps. And if you want to learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, and more, then go to birthfall.com. Big thanks to Patreon supporter and doula Megan Othling for helping bring this episode to the world. So before we start today's show, I do want to give a warning that Melissa's story can be upsetting. And if you've experienced pregnancy loss, it can also be triggering. If you are pregnant and avoiding difficult birth stories, then you might want to skip this episode. Having said that, I am incredibly honored to have Melissa Krowecki here on the show today to share with us her very powerful story. Melissa is an author, advocate, wife, and mother of two children, one living and one deceased. She has used grief to propel her work as a blogger and author of the published book In the Shade of Ava's Tree, published with Preclarious Press in 2015. She works alongside the bereaved in honoring grief as well as teaching birth workers about loss and birth trauma. A PTSD survivor, EMDR advocate, and experienced in pregnancy after loss, she has created the Navigating Pregnancy After Loss and the Supporting the Bereaved workshops, all tailored toward these experiences. Melissa is a course creator and professor of thanatology, and she facilitates several grief groups and donates her time in her community as co-creator of the Elgin Community Pregnancy Infant and Child Peer Support Group. She lives in St. Thomas, Ontario with her husband and daughter, Remembering Ava Always. It is a pleasure for me to have you here today, Melissa. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a long time fan and friend of Birthful, so I'm very excited to be here today. Mm, and I, you are so inspiring to me. Um, I've followed, you know, we originally met at a Birth and Beyond conference a couple of years ago. Yes, and since, Yeah. And since then, uh, you've written your book. Um, which I, in the shade of Ava's tree. Yes. And I finished reading it. I sat down and read it yesterday. <laughs> and from beginning to end. So I am really, we were talking before we started recording, how I am very much in that space of the show. So it is, I, I was, before I read the book, I thought you were amazing. And after reading oh. the book, I'm like, Oh, I am not worth it. Like you, you've gone through so much, Melissa. This is quite, quite an experience. Well, thank you. Um, I've heard from many readers that have said that when they read the book, they sit down and they read it and they read it cover to cover. And then they exist in this space for a little while. And oftentimes they find their way over to my blog and they'll read every single entry that I've written there as well um, in an attempt to sort of, uh, put together what's happened and um, get to understand us even better. It seems as if the book starts in insatiability, um, people really wanting to know more. Mm. You're doing important work, and I am thrilled to have you here today to talk about it. So part of, of what happened today is I realized that there was no way we could touch upon all the important things that you put out in this book and the work you do in one episode. So we're going to turn this into a two-part episode. Oh, I'm so honored. Thank you. 
Oh, and no, I, I, I really want to give it the space it needs. So in this episode today, we're going to focus more on sort of the medical aspect of the HELP syndrome. Yes. So can we start just by what, what the hell is HELP? <laughs> <laughs> that was about my reaction as well. Um, what the hell is this thing? Um, HELP syndrome is a variant of preeclampsia. Most people are aware that preeclampsia is high blood pressure in pregnancy. And high blood pressure in pregnancy can come with a myriad of symptoms, including the high blood pressure itself, uh, excess protein in your urine, severe headaches, blurred vision. Um, HELP syndrome takes preeclampsia, and it's a variant of it. So it's a more severe variant. And what it is, is it is your body's reaction to preeclampsia in a whole different way. Um, it's broken down into several parts. A couple components are the active components of it, including the breakdown of red blood cells that occurs. You have an increase in your liver enzymes and you have a decrease in your platelets. Platelets are what allow your blood to clot. And in my case, my um, platelet count was so severe that it placed me in class one of help, which is under 50,000 platelets. Um, so I actually ended up needing numerous blood transfusions. Um, it help syndrome carries an enormous global morbidity rate. You're looking at uh, close to 25% in the world. Um, it is very, very high morbidity rate and it's very dangerous for mamas and babies. Mm -hmm. And, which, in your case, and it seems that this is very common for help, which will say it, it, it's expelled H-E-L-L-P, and I am Correct. the irony that it has both the word hell and help in it is not mm -hmm. lost on me. Yes. Um, yes. And that, that's an acronym that stands for the H is for the hemoglobin... Um, but I, I, that one, I <laughs> we're getting into medical stuff. <laughs> the hemolysis, which is breaking down of red blood cells. Then the yeah. EL is elevated liver enzymes. LP, low platelet, platelet count. Correct. Um, that it can come on very sudden, which was sort of what happened in your case. Yes, it can happen very, very suddenly. The predominant... A uh, number of cases occurs after 20 weeks. Now, bearing in mind, I'm not a medical professional, um, so I can speak only to what my doctors have told me and what my experience has been. But my um, experience with help was an onset um, that began on a Saturday, and by um, Monday night, I was being admitted into an intensive care unit. It was very, very quick. Mm-hmm. And I think, yes, you are not a medical ex expert, but the thing is, there is very little known about preeclampsia in general, and even less so about help. So I think looking at what a person can go through in this situation is even more important. I really agree, and that was a huge motivating factor for me to write the book uh, when I went home and with no baby and was in recovery from having help syndrome. I first thing I did was hop on Google and I put in help syndrome and I couldn't find anyone. I couldn't find any books. I couldn't find any organizations. Um, and it took a lot of searching to find anyone that had been through this and the experience of losing a child being so profoundly isolating Add on top of it, having a syndrome that nearly killed me and, killed my daughter that I can't even find supports for either um, really motivated me to begin to reach out and to try to find more people that have gone through this. And uh, I have, there are many organizations out there now, but it is a very difficult uh, experience to go through, especially because it is so rare. Yeah. And I'm sure all the listeners right now are going like, but what's the story? Because you, <laughs> you just dropped all kinds of little little information bombs right there. Yes. <laughs> so let's go into it. Can you tell us your story? Certainly. Um, I 
well, where do we start? We start way back at the beginning, back when my husband and I were married and with our little house and doing everything you do when you first get married and decide you want to have kids, which of course is, well, we went out and we got a dog and we went and began to renovate this little house room by room and started to plan and dream about our future there together. I discovered that I was pregnant rather quickly. We decided that we would like to get pregnant and we were very immature, very laissez-faire and just thought, well, whatever happens, happens. And we ended up getting pregnant that first month, elated, overjoyed, uh, terrified. We were all the things that first-time parents are and even more so. We had a very healthy pregnancy um, all through the beginning part of the pregnancy, very normal pregnancy. We sought out midwifery care here in Canada. I feel like I should preface this by saying that I'm in Canada, so my healthcare model and some of my terms might be a little bit different um, than some of our American listeners. Um, I, so I sought out midwifery care and, um, and plugged away uh, at our little pregnancy. It was a very quiet time in our life. It was a very joyful time. Our child, Ava, was a very quiet soul. My husband is this profoundly introverted and quiet man who has a very wicked sense of humor. And I, I just knew carrying her that she was a lot like her dad, very quiet, very laid back, very relaxed. Um, the only time that that would change would be around nine o'clock at night when all of a sudden it was like the dinner sugar would hit her and she'd bounce all over my stomach and we would lie in bed with her and talk to her and watch my belly roll. At about 34 weeks pregnant, I began to feel really late run down and I sought out my midwives and to sort of talk to them about it all and had a urine test and all that good stuff. And they just sort of said to me, you know, maybe it's time that you should be taking a step back off of work. It sounds to me like, you know, you're starting to get really tired and pregnancy is, is a tough thing. So respect what your body's telling you. We, um, I ended up deciding, okay, at the end of the 35th week that I would go off of work. And so I just had one more week left. On Saturday, February the 5th of 2011, was my baby shower. It remains probably the happiest day of my life, or one of the happiest days of my life. I had all of my family under our roof, under our new little renovated house, and we celebrated this new little person that was coming into our family. Everybody was there, my siblings, my aunts, my uncles. It was joyful. I'd woken up that morning, though, and I had felt really, really ill. Um, I woke up and I felt really run down and I had this strange achy pain underneath my right rib. It was this constant type of pain. Like if you were to move it, it didn't move with you. Not like a muscular pain does. It was constant. It almost sort of felt like you needed to hang on to it. Just sort of there. I ended up consulting some of the mums at the baby shower, as you do, and they all sort of commented, well, baby's head down and feet up. It's probably that, you know, the baby's been kicking your ribs. We didn't know she was a girl at this time, so um, all this time we, we just called her baby. We, um, so yeah, at the, at the baby shower, I was feeling really run down, and I just sort of muscled through the day, and got to the end of the day, very happy, but very feeling unwell and, um, uh, ended up putting my feet up at the end of the day. And I saw that my legs were really, really swollen, um, like big swollen, like put your finger in them and you can see the edema swollen. This is another symptom of preeclampsia or, uh, actually help syndrome impending is swelling of, um, the body swelling of the legs. And I just assumed I was up on my feet too much. How many times have you heard of a pregnant lady who's got her feet or legs are all swollen out? You just assume it's normal. Yeah, and you're so told, that, just put your feet up. That's right. That's exactly mm -hmm. what you're told. Just put your feet up. It's fine. So I, I had another glass of water, and I put my feet up, and, and that's what I did for the next day. 
on the Sunday, my husband and I spent a quiet day unwrapping baby presents and I felt horrible. That pain had moved from being underneath my ribs to actually being between my shoulder blades, um, particularly on my right side. This constant sort of pain where I felt like I had to go and put a heat pack on it and see if I could help it out. Never so bad at this point that I wanted to like go and take a Tylenol, but it was there and it was lingering. So we put up the playpen and we unpacked our things and we dreamed about one last week of work and then it was going to be baby time and I just felt kind of crummy. That Monday morning I got up and decided to go to work, my last work week that I had, and the pain was still there. I still felt kind of fluish under the weather, um, thought I could get through the day, brought my little ice pack with me to, uh, to the office and brought my pack lunch and just thought, okay, I'll get through this day and get through this week and then I'll be off with baby. Over the course of the day, the pain began to increase in my shoulders. Slowly, 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 tick by tick, it started to increase. Around 11 o'clock in the morning, I contacted my midwives and I explained to them what I was experiencing. And they asked me if I had any vision troubles, any headaches, anything like that, other symptoms that would show them that it was preeclampsia. And I said, no, no, because I didn't. They said to me, well, take a Tylenol, you can. And if the pain goes away, then it's obviously muscular. If it doesn't, then we should get you checked out. That sounded fair to me. I took the Tylenol. At first, it made it go away. So I thought, okay, that's what this is. Around 3 o'clock that day, I suddenly found myself on my feet. Um, standing, Sitting at my cubicle, the world's tiniest little cubicle that I worked in, in social services. And all of a sudden, I just found myself standing up. Like, suddenly moved to do something. And... The pain was suddenly a lot more, and my whole body was on alert. I found myself just walking towards my boss's office to tell them that I needed to go home. All of a sudden, it was like adrenaline kicked through my body and said, something's not okay here. Something's not okay. I got to my boss's door, and she was on the phone. And I waited, and I waited. And as I was waiting there, I felt this crystallizing feeling, this sparkling sensation, tingling all through my body. It was about 3.15 in the afternoon, and that's when her medical report would say that that is when she died, right there in the hallway, waiting outside my boss's office to go home. I never ended up connecting with my boss at that point. The sensation of needing to leave took over, and I packed my things and I simply left. I got home to my husband and my mother, and um, from there we contacted our midwives with the pain ever increasing. By 6 o'clock that night, I was presenting in Emerge. Um, the pain at that point between my shoulder blades was so large that I could only lie down. If you know body anatomy, my that pain between my shoulder blades is actually my liver. That's what's called referred uh, liver pain. And my liver at that point was in so much distress from the HELP syndrome that it was swelling, it was bruising, and I would begin to bleed out if I wasn't already bleeding out at this point. When I arrived in Emerge, they took one look at me in screeching pain, in can't stand up, catch your breath, 10 out of 10 pain and said, well, this isn't an emergency. You need to go up to the labor ward. My husband put me in a wheelchair and wheeled me up there. When arriving onto the maternity ward, it was absolutely dark. Nobody was there. Small town hospital, just a little county hospital near our house. It's where we were planning on delivering. And when we came around the corner, all the lights flew on and... They immediately whisked us into a room. They told me to get changed into a gown and that they would take a look at us and figure out what was going on. The pain was so bad that I couldn't actually 
get undressed on my own. And it would be the first time of what would be hundred times that my husband would have to physically help me dress and undress myself over the next couple of months as our story unfolds. He dressed, undressed me, got me into my hospital gown and laid me down on the bed. Lying down was the only place I really found relief from the pain. It was the only place that I could feel like catch my breath from it. The nurse came in and put a Doppler to my belly and right away the heartbeat came through. She said, oh, your baby's just fine. Okay, well, she took some information. I'm gonna let you know. I'm gonna talk to the doctor and get right back to you. She goes into the hall. Relieved to hear our baby's heartbeat, relieved to be somewhere safe and maybe they could figure this out. My husband and I were taking a couple deep breaths and before we could really process what was next, they came back into the room and said, I'm sorry, the doctor says this isn't pregnancy related. You're going to have to go to emerge. Back into the wheelchair, back downstairs, back into emerge where this time I'm whisked through into a bed. And now we're told we have to wait to figure out what's going on. I'm joined there by my midwife and by my parents as they begin to try to attempt to figure out what's going on with us. I say us because it really did feel like the three of us um, in our story and the way that I talk, it's the way that I understand what's happened. It's an us, it's my husband, myself and my child. Um, and all through our story, that is exactly how I have coped and how um, we have gone through this is step by step together. Although what's happening to me is the physical pain that's happening to me, um, it certainly isn't us that this is happening to. I'm met by a very lovely doctor in uh, the emergency unit, a man named Dr. Bishop. And he comes in and he's young-faced. He looks like he just got off a track somewhere and he doesn't look very old to be a doctor and comes in and says that, well, I, I don't know what's going on with you, but we're going to try and figure this out. So there in Emerge, he starts running a battery of tests. They think I could have a blood clot in my lung. Send me for an x-ray. No, it's clear. They think it could be other issues. Uh, so they start doing blood work. It would be hours in that Emerge room as they do test after test, attempting to figure out what's going on. Somewhere in the blur of all of this, my midwife uh, says to me, you know, it's been a while, let's check in on baby. And she puts the Doppler to my belly. Lovely Laura, my midwife, I still remember the look on her face as she is searching my belly over and over looking for the heartbeat. And I look over her shoulder and I see that it's about 9.30 at night. And it occurs to me that I haven't felt the baby move in a while. It's nine o'clock, 9.30. This is when baby was super active and playful. And this is when we would call baby's name and watch my tummy roll. And I haven't felt baby in a while. Finally, all of a sudden, a heartbeat comes through on the Doppler. Laura looks a little surprised and says, oh, baby has moved on us. I thought, oh, I haven't felt her move. I haven't, this didn't make sense to me. As I'm watching my husband's face and watching her face, she's relieved there's the heartbeat. My husband's nodding along in, in agreement. Yep, that's the heartbeat. But I haven't felt baby and the moment suddenly was interrupted by Dr. Bishop re-entering the room. He had a medical encyclopedia in his hand and he said, I think I know what you have, which is either ironic or entirely startling to see your doctor standing at the end of your bed with the medical encyclopedia. And he orders another round of blood work. It would be another 45 minutes or so before he would come back in and say that, yes, indeed, we have HELP syndrome. And HELP syndrome's only cure, the only way to cure it is to deliver the baby, that it is a reaction between the mother and the baby, and that the baby would need to be delivered immediately. 
unfortunately, this small county hospital that I was at doesn't have a NICU. And at this point, we're four, 34 and 6. So little baby would need extra support when born. So they would have to transfer us by ambulance to the next city over, which is about 30 minutes away, to deliver the baby. I remember... Mm-hmm. Yeah, Melissa, go ahead. Sorry, I am going to interrupt you. I have a couple of questions. And, of course. And we're going to take a break, too. So <laughs> first, the questions, because I'm, I'm like, I can't interrupt her. She's this, I'm enthralled in the story. But now, looking at it from afar, what? so your blood pressure was not high. No. Right? And you weren't having protein in your urine. No. Which are usually a couple of, you know, like the biggest check marks of, oh, is this preeclampsia? Let's check blood pressure. Let's check protein in the urine. Yeah. And that was part of what was making this diagnosis so hard. Yes, that is absolutely it. Um, My midwife referred to it as the zebra syndrome. So when you hear horse hooves, you think it's going to be a horse. And in fact, it wasn't a horse, it was a zebra. Um, I was presenting in a way that made them have to look at almost every other diagnosis before HELP syndrome because I didn't have high blood pressure, I didn't have severe headache, excess protein in my urine, nausea, or vomiting. The only thing I had was right upper quadrant pain, which is what they call that, pain underneath the ribs or pain between the shoulder blades. And even the shoulder blade blade pain is referred. Um, which means it's not where they would think the pain would be. Um, every way I presented in HELP syndrome isn't classic. Which is my, what makes HELP so difficult to diagnose because it can be, and, and that we don't know so much about it. And um, in terms of, do you know what numbers, what percentage of pregnancies might get preeclamp or present preeclampsia? And of those, like what, what the, the percentage is for HELP? Certainly. Um, U.S. statistics, Canadian statistics, I don't have on hand, but U.S. statistics, 8 to 15 percent of women in pregnancy develop preeclampsia. And of those 8 to 15 percent, 15 percent of them uh, end up getting HELP syndrome. So the way that I presented, the severity that I had, as well as my own makeup in regards to I have no pre-existing conditions, no other indicators that would have pointed them towards this being HELP syndrome. My doctors have said that I had a 1% chance of having HELP syndrome the way that I did. Hmm. And also the fact that you are in the emergency room, which is HELP syndrome is something, preeclampsia and HELP is something that might be more in the, you know, wheelhouse and, 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 and radar of, say, if you were up in obstetrics and labor and delivery. But being in the emergency room, then this can be the other things that they tend to see that have the, these pain could be like gallbladder or, you that's know, right. right. So that's why they were, I just want to put it into perspective of why, cause it's, cause you were there for hours and hours. Yes. In excruciating pain. Yes. Right. Yes. Hours and hours before even diagnosis. Um, And as you know, as you've read my book, we're still hours and hours away from um, this chapter of medical trauma being over. Um, It took many hours to receive diagnosis. And that is not uncommon with HELP syndrome of women that I've connected with. Um, It can be days and even weeks, um, depending on the severity of HELP syndrome, to get proper diagnosis and treatment. Which is why I think the job that you're doing is incredible and why we need to tell more moms about this because it is something that is not so common but can be so impactful, horribly impactful, that mm-hmm. awareness needs to come from somewhere and, and, and of people going like, well, let's make sure, let's rule this out first because it can be devastating. Yes, Yeah. absolutely. We're going to take a quick break here and then come back with your story. Research tells us that 92% of new moms report significant problems with breastfeeding within the first week and that common problems include nipple pain, milk production, and latching. 
Let me tell you, nipple pain sucks. It is no fun at all. And the thing is that it only takes a couple of badly latched breastfeeding sessions for your nipples to become unnecessarily damaged. Do yourself a favor and go watch Dr. Teresa Nesbitt and Nancy Moorbacher's free quick start video that gives you everything, everything you need to know to get started with natural breastfeeding. I have seen these techniques work time and time again since this is what I teach my doula clients and it's also super comfortable to do. I'm telling you, your back will not hurt from breastfeeding if you use these techniques. So go do it. Go watch the quick start video to natural breastfeeding at naturalbreastfeeding.com. And we're back. I'm talking to Melissa Krowecki about her story of um, of surviving help and and having stillbirth and rebirth, which is Surviving Help, Stillbirth, and Rebirth is the subtitle for her book, In the Shade of Ava's Tree, who Ava is her daughter. And now I, I don't remember where we left off in the story, <laughs> Melissa. I I'm do sure remember. you do. Yes, I'm sure you do. <laughs> so um, where we left off in the story is I was just being transferred in our story, transferred over to the um, medical hospital that would be able to deliver our child being that I was under 35 weeks pregnant. Um, I remember the ambulance ride over there very quick, very clearly. I remember hanging on to my belly and I remember praying and apologizing. I remember apologizing to our baby for my body not working properly. I was scared. I didn't know what this hope syndrome thing was and I didn't know uh, what laid it in front of us. It was probably about 1 a.m. in the morning uh, so many hours after going into the hospital system, as I was wheeled into uh, the next hospital in our journey, when I got to the hospital, I was greeted by the nursing team as well as the um, maternal fetal medicine specialist on staff that night, so a high-risk doctor on staff that night. He didn't make eye contact with me. He stared at his cookboard as he essentially said, you have help syndrome, we're going to do an ultrasound, and then we are going to induce labor so that we can have the baby be born as quickly as possible. They hooked me up to the ultrasound machine, my husband's in the room with me, and my mom is just out in the hall as the ultrasound tech puts the wand over my belly time and time again. All of a sudden, she clicks the machine off and she says, I just have to get something. Then she walks out of the room. I look up at my husband and it occurs to me what may be coming for us. I look out at my mom and the doctor comes in. He puts my child's profile up on the screen and turns the screen to face me and then says, your child has expired. My husband reeling my mother's face of horror in the hallway. And I do what so many women do. Is I turn to my husband and I apologize. I apologize for my body failing and for our child dying. A very common grief reaction, I now know. Um, they immediately begin to induce labor. The level of pain that I'm in is very constant and it only serves to increase with my midwife there, all of us begin to fight to advocate to see if we can get me the support that I need to deal with this level of pain that I'm in in my back. Um, all the while, they're frantically attempting to induce labor, um, not to negate labor by any stretch of the means, um, but um, as they put Pitocin in and attempt to get contractions going, the pain that I'm in is so strong that I remember contractions and I remember them just being like a paper cut compared to the liver pain that I was in at the time. They were unable to give me any medications, any epidural or anything like that because with HELP syndrome, your platelet count lowers. And I have the most severe case of HELP syndrome, uh, which is under 50,000 platelets. So it's not safe to have an epidural. What it is safe to have is a little bit of drip morphine and that's about the only thing that they're able to give me 
uh, for the duration of our time there. Do you know why at this point they're not talking about a cesarean? Because the doctor that I had was not willing to consider a cesarean, probably because the platelets being so low. But at this point, as I'm beginning to labor, they put me onto a medication called magnesium sulfate. That, mag- that magnesium sulfate st- could stop you from having a seizure. Hope syndrome can present in numerous ways. Um, the two most likely ways are that your liver will uh, rupture and you will have liver problems because of your body attempting to compensate for the, red- the breakdown of your red blood cells. Or the other reaction that women often have is seizure. And I've heard, though I'm not a medical expert, that seizures are actually more common than the liver reaction to HELP syndrome. So they put me on mag sulfate. Mag sulfate makes everything blurry. Um, this medication is, is dreadful to experience. And um, so on top of the pain and everything else, it makes everything really foggy. So as I'm telling this part of the story, it's important uh, for me to say that I'm doing this through a lens of fog and of distance from even the experience because of the medications they have me on. Right, and the pain as well. And the pain as well, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It would take until shift change the next morning at 7 a.m. So I labor from one in the morning until 7 a.m. Um, no medications, inducing labor, big back pain, chaos in the room, people coming in and out and in and out time and time again, multiple vaginal checks, many, many vaginal checks over and over again, um, in a franticness to sort of see if they can get the baby delivered sooner. Um, it wasn't until shift change occurred at 7 a.m. that a new doctor came in to the scene and had a different approach in which to treat uh, this situation. Uh, Dr. Hernandez came right up to me. He looked me right in the eye and he said to me, you know, this, this pain that you're having isn't normal. And that was what everyone was attempting to get understood before was that this pain wasn't normal and that it needed to be investigated. It was through ultrasound that they saw blood in my abdomen, free-floating blood in my abdomen from my liver bleeding out. And it was through a CT scan after that that they were actually able to see that I was actively bleeding out and was in the process of dying. It would be about 3 o'clock that afternoon when I would finally meet with the team that would be assisting us in delivering our daughter as well as saving my life, Dr. Hernandez, who is a, um, who is, who was my liver surgeon, Dr. Lopez, who was my obstetrician and, uh, Dr. McMillan who delivered our child. And <laughs> like, take a moment to, yep. to bring it all in. Right. As we're going through this story, it becomes deeply entrenched that it is a story of many levels of trauma. Yes. Uh, that that things keep happening to increase another layer of difficulty and trauma into this. And and difficulty of communicating and difficulty of you know being in a fog and not knowing what's going on and meeting new people and getting shuffled along or moved along i would suppose um as people realize the severity of the situation how do you cope with that in the moment i coped with it by clinging to the people that i could trust In the moment, I clung to my husband, who, by the way, was just as reeling. He just didn't have the medications um, and just as traumatized um, watching his wife be um, treated so harshly at times and to be doing things that he never should have had to see at all 
um, I clung very closely to my people um, around somewhere in those wee hours of that morning. Um, I remember asking for my sister to come and be with us as well. Um, it was my sister, my midwife, my husband, my parents. Um, that's what actually helps you cope. Further to that, um, this was such a chaotic room as they're frantically attempting to get my body to deliver um, that I went inside. I went inside myself. I, I hung on to my baby. I looked at this chaos and this pain and I didn't want to deliver my baby into this. And I remember actually physically covering my belly up with my hands and curling onto my side and protecting my child from this room. Um, yes, even though she had died, uh, still attempting to protect her from this wild chaos that is treating help syndrome. And at this point, you are very much, you're not still out of the woods. Yes, they've finally identified the situation and you have a new doctor who mm -hmm. is changing the care, but you still have a while to go. Yes, I do. Um, I, they would transfer me to a third hospital that later that afternoon around three o'clock and it was there that they would operate. They would secure my liver so they would stop the bleeding and they would pack it so that it could stop bleeding and they would deliver my daughter uh, to the hands of my family and, and my husband and I would be in ICU for five more days. I would be um, I would need to have at least one more surgery to unpack my liver and to make sure it had stopped bleeding. I would need 14 blood transfusions, three of which were platelet counts. And I would be in hospital for two more weeks. I was by no means um, near the end of this trauma piece of our story. And it seems almost... <laughs> In, impossible to comprehend that it, and and maybe this is my this is how I'm viewing, viewing it and and I don't know how you're viewing it at that point but it is almost that you know the the loss of a child is is an incredible trauma mm -hmm. but then it seems that the medical reality that's happening on top of that is almost bigger Yes. at that moment and overshadowing the the trauma of the loss. I'm, I'm so glad you picked up on that. I'm so glad that that's something that you see because while in the midst of it, it truly was. It wasn't until I was out of the ICU unit or just before I was removed from the ICU unit when my midwife came to see me in hospital. And I remember her holding my hand and looking me in the eyes, her eyes to this day are like burned into my soul because of this moment and her essentially giving me permission to grieve. So much of everything I needed to do to survive was having to focus on my health that it wasn't until a number of days after I was out of the coma and began to begin my recovery journey that I was actually given the space to grieve. And it was partly by that same intention that I fought my way out of the hospital far sooner than I think they wanted me to be released. I fought my way out because I knew I couldn't grieve my child and I couldn't begin that grief journey while in those walls because those walls for me meant trauma. Right. And so in that light of the trauma, I know you did a lot of and and, and this is why this is two episodes, because <laughs> and, you know, it probably should be three um, <laughs> in that light of, of 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 how we're talking in this episode of, more about the medical aspect and the help syndrome and the trauma from that. How, you know, what other parts of the story would you like to tell? And then I'd like to get, before we, you know, get much longer into it, get into the stage of 
dealing with all the trauma and the triggers and and things that helped you you know we know in the moment how you were coping but things that help you cope as you move forward I think one thing that I would love to touch upon would have to be the importance of involving traumatized patients in their own care. I can remember the face of every doctor and every nurse that held that space with me that walked up and took my hand and took a moment to explain what they were going to do before they did it. Um, that level of care and being able to communicate and involve traumatized patients in care is so important. And it is through not doing that, that trauma can occur so easily. So many times I have had to deal with trauma and process trauma because I simply wasn't able to give consent or I wasn't able to be fully present when an action occurred to me. So I think it's important that we recognize that our care providers so often are traumatized as well and so often are trying to figure it out and they're frantic, but in doing so can traumatize you deeply. So we need them to connect with you so that your care can um, not have you walk away with dealing with more than um, the physical ramifications. I had post-traumatic stress disorder after this experience. Post-traumatic stress disorder is often associated with, um, you know, only war victims. And at the time when you get landed with a title such as that, it's a little intimidating until it occurs to you or until you do the reading that says really anyone can suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and it is the your body and your brain's reaction to dealing with very difficult events that occur. Uh, I dealt with post-traumatic stress disorder by um, doing EMDR therapy, eye movement desensitization therapy. It is a specified type of therapy that um, I was guided towards to help me process the trauma that I had gone through. I believe in full trauma support for individuals who are in the midst of trauma as well as afterwards. So seeking out those help and those supports, counseling services, they're so vitally important to recovering um, emotionally and mentally from such a harrowing thing as this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to like put my thoughts in order. Um, what else about the HELP syndrome do listeners need to know about? And I know you're not a medical professional. <laughs> if there's anything I could say loud and clearly is, um, so oftentimes this is a syndrome that presents like normal pregnancy symptoms, swelling, headache, um, flu-like symptoms, headache, you know, things like this that are just seen as being so normal. Um, and it wasn't until my gut reaction said, this isn't okay, that I sought help. Um, ironic, that word. Um, I would say I, I want moms to know, I want their family members to know that there is no shame in harassing your midwives and harassing your doctors and saying, no, I don't feel okay. I want you to check this out. No, I want you to look again. Because I think so often we are told that women who seek help um, and assistance when they're pregnant are whining or, oh, you just don't know how bad it can be. This is not something you muscle through. This is not something that, that you ignore. So if you're in any doubt as to your health, I urge you to be that person who goes to the doctor and says, nope, check again. Nope, check again. Because as we'll talk about, I think, in our next podcast about pregnancy after loss, um, that's the biggest lesson that women take forward is I don't care if I'm that person check me again to make sure that everything's okay help syndrome is caught when you do that when you step in and you say no I need you to look at me something doesn't feel quite right so listen to your intuition and seek medical help as soon as you can if you don't feel like things are okay 
Yeah. And I think that's that's huge that we really stress that because it, it especially it is because of how I present and the symptoms and it's so easy to just brush it aside. Going back to that, the, and it's a message that you have in the book and it's a message you've said today also is if something is not okay, you know your ba- your body better than anybody. You know what your body feels like. Mm-hmm. And and you know how when something is really not okay that it's just like this is no this is you know not quite like last time or not like so yes incredibly important um, message thank you thank you so much for that you're welcome and to everybody who's listening you you need to go and get Melissa's book so you can get. All the, the other layers of this story, because obviously in this amount of time, we couldn't cover it all. But we are going to do part two in our next podcast. So, Melissa, thank you so, so, so much for all the work you do and for sharing your story with us today. You're welcome. And thank you so much for having me. And if listeners want to know more about you or follow what you're doing or get your book, how can they do that? Um, if you'd like to pick up In the Shade of Avis Tree, you've got a couple of options. It's on Amazon.com as well as you can check out www.avastree.com. And that's where you can follow us along. It's a blog that started it all. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Mighty Mamas, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts, and if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages, and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful, so come say hi. And if you're pregnant, don't forget to grab my Birth Partners Ultimate Labor Support Toolkit at birthful.com slash toolkit. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at naturalbreastfeeding.com. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.